Hey, are you into werewolves, mad scientists, and a little bit of witchcraft? Then stay tuned for an all-new episode of Watch Corner. We're riding this train straight into the sun. Woo! Tune in to a classic episode of Watts Corner on the Seltzer Kings Network. Available on all podcast platforms. I don't know, Gavin. I would think the BBC would want more British people to do drugs. It helps them live there and cope with the weather. Yes. The following podcast contains... Oh, ah, what the f*** did you do that for? Hey, that was... Don't swear. What are we? Werewolves, not swirls. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When you made a public service announcement telling kids not to do drugs while blitzed out of your mind on cocaine, what the hell were you thinking? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe, and this is episode number 407, Rock Against Drugs, where we talk about the least likely to succeed drug awareness campaign in history. Stay tuned. The What the Hell Were You Thinking podcast is brought to you by me, Dave Bledsoe, who wants you to know that urinating behind a dumpster parked on a public street is wrong, and you should never do that. As part of a court-mandated probationary agreement, I, international podcast and fake radio star Dave Bledsoe, am here to tell you that public urination is a crime, no matter how drunk or how badly you need to pee. Public sanitation is the responsibility of every New Yorker, and public urination is unsanitary and unsightly. If witnessed by minors, it could lead to serious charges of public indecency and potential sex crime charges. You may think it's funny, but it's a very serious thing. As part of my probation agreement, I, Dave Bledsoe, tell you this. When you have to go, don't just let it flow. Find yourself a restroom. This message is brought to you by the Coalition for Sanitary Streets, the New York City Court System, and the Ad Council. I know everybody's like trying to be straight now. Doesn't that piss you off, these fucking rock and roll pussies? Yeah, I watch MTV all the time. They have the Rock Against Drug commercials, that whole campaign. These guys have, like, you know, slid into fucking school buses and killed 20 children, you know. Rather than a facial license, they made a public service announcement. Yeah, no shit. Yeah. I love these guys. that is like, hello, listen, don't get caught with drugs or you'll have to do a commercial just like this one. Yeah. I, I think I found the message. The message is don't get caught. Rock against drugs. What a fucking name. Somebody was high when they came up with this title, yeah. It's like Christians Against Christ. I've mentioned a time or two that my parents had, indeed have, strong opinions about my drinking alcohol. It's the devil's work, Dave. Now, clearly, their attempts to keep me off the demon alcohol failed and failed rather badly. Dude, you are an alcoholic. <laughs> Whatever. But I gotta give them credit for doing their best. I mean, my mom once told me that she would far prefer my smoking weed than to my drinking booze. And my reaction to this was something along the lines of, uh... Your terms are acceptable. And so began my teenage love affair with the devil's lettuce. I want to be clear, I, I also still drank liquor, but far less than I smoked weed. There were a couple of reasons for this, the biggest which, of course, was it's far, far easier to get weed than it was to get booze. Booze required either a parent with poor inventory control or... Someone's older sibling willing to put up with a bunch of 16-year-olds begging them to buy us booze. But if you just wanted weed, all you gotta do was go see Jim. Is he your drug dealer? Please, dealer implies that Jim sold drugs. That wasn't the case. Jim was our high school weed guy. 
I see in these jaded times you probably don't understand the difference. You see, back in my small Idaho town in the late 1980s, drug dealers were the guys who sold the weed to your local weed guy. And then Jim would sell the weed and only weed to us. How is this different? Okay, let me try to explain. Weed was not then, nor is it now, drugs. Weed was just, you know, weed. There were different pipelines for drugs, each a totally different enterprise. Say, say you wanted mushrooms or acid. Jim wasn't the guy who sold that to you. That was Carl, the fry cook of the Tiger's Den, who had to connect with some people in Boise he knew because they all follow the Grateful Dead together. But if you wanted real drugs, cocaine or speed, that meant you bought them from a waitress at the truck stop along the interstate named Shirley, who primarily sold to truckers. But if you were cool with Carl, you could get a referral from him. Heroin. Oh, heroin in southern Idaho in the late 1980s? Are you kidding me? No one was doing heroin. Hell, in Mountain Home, no one was really doing coke or speed outside of the truckers. However, we're talking about me. And I smoked weed and dabbled infrequently in mushrooms, and I took acid one time. But all of this stopped when I enlisted in the military. Mostly. What? You're wondering? Does all of this have to do with our topic this week? Well... Almost nothing. You have wasted, wasted our time, sir. Look, the show has a formula. Open with some little anecdote from my childhood during the time frame we're discussing tangentially related to a topic. If you don't like how I do it, start your own damn podcast or, you know, listen to a better one. Where was I? Oh, oh, right. We're, we're talking about this week's topic, Rock Against Drugs. I'm John Bon Jovi, and I've been given a script to talk to you about drugs, rock and roll, having fun, a good time, and all that good stuff. Well, I'll tell you what, drugs is not a part of my everyday routine, it's not everyday fun, it's not good for you, all right? So listen, think twice before you do drugs, because there ain't no winners out there doing it. Notice John said it wasn't a part of his day-to-day. You know, John still got fired up on the fucking weekends, and tour nights or just whenever it was not daytime and if you can't trust a guy like john bon jovi who was a former high school weed guy himself who can you trust stuff magazine told me quote bon jovi frontman confessed he bought and sold marijuana while he was a struggling teenager growing up in new jersey he said i did the drug thing very young and wised up very young too because i was into drugs a little too much i was entrepreneurial even then and buying a quarter pound of dope and trying to make a couple of bucks. The Living on a Prayer singer said he had a bad experience with illegal substances at an early age that stopped him from becoming a user when he eventually found fame and fortune. The father of four said, quote, Did you ever smoke dope that was laced with PCP and then have that whole summer of hallucinations? It was fucking awful, unquote. I mean, sure, John, I I see that. I mean, PCP doesn't work like that at all, but hey, you know, whatever your PR rep told you to say, am I right? Before I can get to rock against drugs specifically, I need to talk about why rock and roll musicians were telling kids that drugs were bad. And well, if I gotta be honest, it's because of this bitch right here. Not long ago in Oakland, California, I was asked by a group of children what to do if they were offered drugs. And I answered, just say no. Soon after that, those children in Oakland formed a Just Say No club. And now, there are over 10,000 such clubs all over the country. I know it's wrong to call a woman you loathe a bitch. 
because it speaks badly of my character. I mean, it is Nancy Reagan, but still, you, you just don't use the word bitch to describe an objectively evil woman who used her power and influence to actively and intentionally make the lives of millions of human beings worse because she didn't like their behavior. If I wanted to be more accurate, I would use the word cunt. No one wants me to do that, though. The Just Say No campaign was Nancy's marquee cause during her husband's campaign. Fine, I'll just say it. Her husband, of course, was Ronald Reagan. Ah, ah, he said it! He said it! The official history of the slogan was what Nancy told you in the clip I just played, but that's almost certainly... ...is complete and utter, straw-grasping bullshit. In this 2016 New York Times obit ad for the, uh, for the ad executive Robert Cox, quote, According to the Yale Book of Quotations, however, the slogan, though closely identified with Nancy Reagan, was originated by the advertising agency Needham, Harper, and Steers. Carolyn Ruffsheds, who was the agency's director of broadcast production, recalled in a telephone interview on Wednesday that the phrase was generated by Mr. Cox and, and David Cantor, a writer at Needham. They were going to talk to children. That was Nancy's thing, Mrs. Ruffed said. Bob and David come up with just say no because that's what a little kid would say. Mrs. Reagan visited the agency that October to preview its campaign. They presented it to Nancy Reagan, and she absolutely loved it, unquote. The Just Say No campaign was a product of ad executives and the White House operatives and the mere idea that Nancy fucking Reagan ever said an off-a-cuff remark to a crowd of children in Oakland, notoriously known for being... Of what? Of a room full of black people? The only black people Nancy ever talked to were bringing her a meal. It's absolutely absurd, and it goes against everything we know about Nancy Reagan, not to mention the political machine behind every fucking White House. You know how I know this? You know who said that? Joe Biden. Just Say No is a complete and total political operation from inception to performance designed not so much to keep kids off drugs, but to give Nancy Reagan the service appearance of giving a shit about other human beings without actually being required to do anything to help them. Why don't you tell us how you really feel? I think I did a moment ago when I used a certain word that I'm not supposed to ever, ever use. The conceit of Just Say No was pretty simple. Various advertising firms would be paid large sums of money to make commercials like this one. Commercials would use what boomers of the time thought was modern music and fun, hip, modern language to inform children that should someone offer them drugs, they should just say no. That's it? Yeah, that's it. Nancy showed up everywhere to fucking talk about just saying no. By 1985, she'd been on 23 different talk shows, co-hosted Good Morning America, and started a two-fucking-hour documentary about drug abuse on PBS. And then she showed up on different strokes in a... Well, this is a very special episode. ...to lecture the kids in Arnold's class on the dangers and drugs. You know who her ass should have been talking to? She should have said something to fucking Willis because Willis was hooked on crack and later on tried to kill his goddamn drug dealer. What you talking about, Willis? It took Johnny Cochran to save his ass. So if Nancy was just going to show up and talk about how saying no was so fucking useful, what the fuck happened to Willis, Nancy? Nancy even appeared 
1985 music video promoting Just Say No called Stop the Madness. I think it's a menace to this country. I think I started drinking when I was 14, and I'm still drinking. That's a good feeling. It's a false feeling. You're looking at jail time anywhere from a year to 25 or 30. When it comes to drugs, friendship stops. It's a temptation. It's the That video is so full of pedantic 80s white people rap tropes that it threatens to form its own gravitational well and goes on for five and a half minutes. Along with Nancy and Ronnie, of course, it featured such luminaries as Claudia Wells, New, New Edition, Latoya Jackson, Whitney Houston. Somebody uh, want to just ponder that one for a second. David Hasselhoff, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Kim Fields, Herb Alpert. Yeah, I know that in the 80s, we were all definitely hooked on Herb Albert. Arnold Schwarzenegger, Daryl Craswell, Tim Feehan, Casey Kasem, and Boogaloo Shrimp from the Breaking franchise. Oh, and I forgot one. I mean, how could I have possibly forgotten Stacy Keach? Am I supposed to know who that is? Come on, he was Sergeant Stadenko in Cheech and Chong movies. You know who that is. I mean, I, I, I guess I should point out that Stacy himself didn't seem to be really helped by Nancy's little slogan since he was arrested for cocaine possession literally days before the video debuted in American high schools. And I guess it was probably this abortion of a video that prompted some very young Republican in the Reagan White House to brainstorm for a hipper way to talk to kids about not doing drugs. Acting, singing, puppeteering. You know, before deciding that what these kids these days really wanted to do was this MTV thing. We could watch MTV. Which was actually true at the time. I told you about that last week. So they decided that the best way to reach the kids was to enlist rock musicians personally in the war on drugs. Which was an odd thing to choose since 99% of the rock stars were already fighting the war on drugs. They just weren't on the government's side. Quoting now from Jordan Edward Turner Ballridge's Rutgers master's thesis, never say I don't do the work to find sources for you people, titled Just Say No or Else, Celebrities as Cultural Advocates in the War on Drugs. Quote, one major response to the Reagan administration's desire to get more industries and agencies involved in the anti-drug crusade emerged from a working group in the California Attorney General's office. Branded R.A.D., Rock Against Drugs, was a collaboration between the California Attorney General John Van de Kamp and famous record producer Danny Goldberg. This represented an ideal reaction to the Reagans' push for more decentralized and independent funding for their cause. Rock Against Drugs perfectly mirrored other just-say-no messaging while operating on its own, using Goldberg's industry connections to recruit an impressive roster of A-list musicians to film public service announcements. Designed and organized in early 1986, Gene Simmons, John Bon Jovi, Lou Reed, Motley Crue, and Phil Collins all participated, each bringing their own artistic style and tone to the simple 30-second messages, unquote. Which is how Vince fucking Neal from Motley Crue said this in a rad commercial in 1989. You know, I've been playing rock and roll for a lot of years. I've done it all. Now I do it without drugs. Hey, don't get me wrong, I still party with the best of them, but now I do it clean. You know, I'm on top of everything I do. 
Vince Neil of Motley Crue, a band that did so many drugs, they personally financed Pablo Escobar's hippo herd. A band that did so many drugs, they were awarded Customer of the Year by the Medellin Cartel for three years running. Vince Neil, who was in and out of rehab so much, they named a California burger chain after him. Vince Neil, who walked out of rehab against medical advice as recently as last year, 2022. Vince Neil, who killed his best friend in a car wreck while fucked up, is making a video telling kids not to do drugs. The balls on this guy. Yeah. <laughs> More from Baldridge, quote, Rock Against Drugs Power, according to the White House officials and members of the media, rested in the fact that teens expected musicians to be drug users. By trotting out significant lineup of rock stars who were willing to decry drug use, even those who were known for having been used drug users themselves, the campaign attempted to leverage the withdrawal of that expectation as an effective shaming tactic for teens, hoping to mirror the lifestyles of their idols, unquote. Now, I want to be clear. Not all the rock stars who did these commercials were raging hypocrites who filmed them while high as a kite. I mean, Gene Simmons. Drugs are great. Drugs make me strong. Drugs make me smart. Drugs make me feel good. Drugs make me cool. Do you believe that crap? Huh? Do you believe all that stuff they're handing you about drugs? You want to believe in something? How about yourself? Don't do drugs. Has notoriously never drank or done drugs in his life because, and I'm not making this up, and quoting now from ultimateclassicrock.com, quote, I'm my mother's only child, Simmons told the Los Angeles Times in a new interview. I was concerned I had no right to harm my mother. Life did that enough, unquote. And all of which I can say is great, Gene. I, I respect that. That's fine. I mean, all the underage girls that you banged because they showed up backstage probably didn't disrespect your mother at all. I mean, I'm just saying, is all. Then there were very sincere rad commercials like this one from the Sex Pistols, Stephen Jones, who put, that came out in late 1988. <laughs> Hi, my name's Steve Jones. I used to play guitar of a band called the Sex Pistols. A good friend of mine, Sid Vicious, died from drugs. I nearly died from drugs. Drugs suck. Okay, that's all true, every bit of it. Uh, Sid Vicious actually OD'd while awaiting trial for killing his girlfriend while he was fucked up on heroin. The Sex Pistols did so many drugs, they make Motley Crue look like Gene Simmons. Steven's health didn't get clean until 1990. I think his math is off. I I'm not saying Steve was lying to us when he recorded that very sincere message. I'm just saying he was still using drugs. Now, you may have noticed, or not, this is an audio product, that the musicians we've heard from so far all share a pretty common trait a whole bunch of white motherfuckers yeah rad was uh, heavily slanted towards the white kids baldridge explains what came next quote the paranoia around crack tangibly changed the trajectory of the drug war and as 
The media continued to report as cracked as a black drug already radicalized discourses became even further steeped in racism. And just as that shift can in part be attributed to the notorious deaths of two black celebrities, black athletes and entertainers responded to the call to further contribute to the anti-drug messaging during the crack era. California Attorney General Von Va John Vandekamp and record partner Danny Goldberg, the same duo, duo that created Rock Against Drugs, teamed up to form a new group called Black Artist Against Drugs, or BAD, B-A-A-D. The group was designed to create announcements featuring rap and soul artists popular among black youths. Young blacks could identify more with their favorite artists than they could with authoritative figures. The collective started producing messages in 1987, recruiting A-listers such as LL Cool J, Public Enemy, Barry White, and Run DMC to dispense rhetoric that was similar to that of Rad, but packaged for slightly different audiences. Black people. Black Danny Goldberg, the record exec who pioneered rad and bad, so he's not an objective speaker on the campaign, wrote in the Los Angeles Times in 1987, quote, It's impossible to measure exactly the effect of any advertising campaign, but letters from fans have been encouraging. One wrote to MTV, which regularly runs the spots, that the commercial by Bon Jovi encouraged him to stop taking drugs. These guys were the only people I would listen to, wrote the high school student. They changed my life. Another fan wrote to rocker Ronnie James Dio, teachers can preach for hours about how bad drugs are, and I still went out and got high. But man, once I heard you say how stupid drugs are, I never touched them again. No, no, no kid said that. I don't give a fuck what he says. Ronnie James Dio is fucking cool, but no kid wrote to Ronnie James Dio saying those exact words. Going back to the article. As producer of rad commercials, I get phone calls from well-intended anti-drug organizations wanting to involve rock stars. Many are connected to the White House campaign, but most rockers have rejected any association with Just Say No because they believe its condescending tone conflicts with what they feel is the emotional honesty of rock and roll. The callers often cannot often understand why rock fans and other teenagers are so unattuned to authority, unquote. What Goldberg is saying is he tried really hard to separate Rad from Just Say No because Just Say No was a political con job that turned off kids from the important message about drug prevention. But uh, I don't know how to tell Danny this, who is, by the way, still around today. But Danny, I, as the target demographic of Rad, along with all my friends of acquaintance from the time, did not in any way differentiate between Rad and Just Say No because we knew... They were just two sides of the same penny that was adults being incredibly hypocritical to us kids. Goldberg went on to say in the op-ed, quote, Just say no ignores this central issue of individuality. Moreover, urging no will never succeed unless society gives young people a sense of what to say yes to. Drug and alcohol abuse in part often stems from low self-esteem. Rhetoric that establishes only one narrow concept of what is good can make teenagers who don't fit in feel like they inevitably will do all the things bad people do, unquote. Not all rock and rollers saw the movement as, as a feel-good philanthropic endeavor. Paul Kantner, who founded Jefferson Airplane, a band that might have referenced drugs a time or two. One pill makes you larger And one pill makes you small and the ones that mother gives you don't do anything at all. 
Quoting from the Chicago Tribune in 1986, quote, Kantner takes a more cynical view, at least towards some celebrities' sudden urge to go public with their stories about their drug and alcohol problems. I see a lot of drug burnouts, particularly using this as a way of getting one last spurt of publicity, he says. I'm not sure how other people respond to celebrity anti-abuse messages. I've always laughed at them when I was a kid. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that people aren't abusing drugs, adds Kantner. I just don't think that they're abusing them in the way that the Reagan administration is portraying it, unquote. Earlier in that same article from the Chicago Tribune, the elephant in the room was clearly called out. Fucking boomers. Quote, why has the desire to speak out against drugs suddenly taken on new urgency in the rock community? Part of it is the music industry feels itself under attack, but several other factors also figure in rock's current rush to the soapbox. Chief among them, age and experience. Many of today's biggest rock stars are men and women in their mid-30s to, to mid-40s whose priorities and values have shifted away from the fast lane lifestyle as they have grown up and in many cases started families of their own, unquote. Look, we all watch Team TV. We read the fan magazines, saw the tours and the music videos that told us that rock and roll was intimately involved with drug use. It was right there in the motto, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. That is what it says. Teenagers have a finely tuned bullshit detector. We may not know a lot about the world, but by the time you get to be 15 or 16 in America, you've been hyper-marketed, commoditized, and completely condescended toward long enough to understand that the words adults are saying to you very little to do with the behavior of the adults speaking. We'd all been ordered not to drink beer, but then saw our dad pound them down like there's a frat boy at a party on the weekends with his boys. Mom was popping diet pills like Tic Tacs to keep the weight off. And also, they were putting a whole lot of pep in her step. Grandpa drank scotch like they were going to stop making scotch real soon. And we all knew about the joint that you kept stashed in the family Bible. It was always tucked in Genesis 9-3. Even as the green herb, I have given you all things. And even the most well-meaning parents couldn't help but be hypocrites. I mean, my friend John and I got caught sneaking into his house one night after curfew with some deer on our breath by his mom, only to re receive this heartfelt talking to about not drinking from his dad, who was so fucking hammered, he was swaying on his feet and slurring his words like he was auditioning for the community theater's production of motherfucking Arthur. Would the more attractive of you please step forward? <laughs> Gonna cost you a hundred dollars. Let's make it two hundred dollars, but I will ask you to simonize my car. <laughs> saying the drugs haven't ruined a lot of lives in rock and roll. Jim Morrison, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Keith New, Nick Drake, Bon Scott, the King of Rock and the Prince of Pop, Prince and Tom Petty. Drug addiction robbed the world of their talents, not to mention them of their own lives. But another argument could be made that drugs made a lot of people rock stars. Uh, Kurt Cobain. Well, not him. I mean, I probably shouldn't run with that argument. What I'm saying here is there was and is a better way to make the case about drug use rather than a puritanical abstinence campaign championed by a woman whose entire reason for existing was to shit on people and things she personally disapproved of. I guess Rad was trying to do that, 
but there was no other way anyone could see it besides rock stars who entire lifestyle glamorize sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Doing a 30-second spot wedged between videos that glamorize sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And also, this is important. No one did drugs because a rock star told them it would look, made them look cool. We did drugs because our friends did drugs and we wanted to look cool in front of them. And our friends did drugs because the older their older siblings did drugs and their older siblings did drugs because their parents did drugs and their parents did drugs because drugs made them think they looked cool when they were trying to do the hustle on the disco floor in 1976. And if you want a crime, that's the biggest crime drugs ever caused. The lie that white people could ever look cool while trying to dance to disco. And if... You were at all curious whether this campaign had any impact at all on people's drug use. The answer is a hard no. Hell, the campaign is only barely remembered. I asked some of my other Gen Xers out there, and they barely remembered existing. Even on the internet, a search for the topic reveals the Sam Kennison bit that I played in the opener, two or three listicle articles based on YouTube compilations of a few rad videos, and a shit ton of reference to the band War on Drugs. Just Say No is clearly remembered. Dare's remembered. McGruff, that egg commercial, and I learned it from watching you, but rad is barely a blip on the cultural memory of this country because everyone knew it was a dumb idea and that everyone involved should be embarrassed by them because, God damn it, they were all doing drugs themselves. But at least... At least we got this. If you believe drugs don't do anything good for us, do me this favor, will you? Go home tonight, take all your albums and tapes, okay? And burn them. Because you know what? The musicians who made all that great music are real fucking high on drugs. <laughs> Shit, the Beatles were so high, they let Ringo sing a couple of tunes. That is it for the show this week. Look. I know I came across pretty badly. I mean, I use misogynist slurs against a former first lady of the United States, to which I say, fuck you, because it's true, that's what she was. Then I kind of sort of came out in favor of kids doing drugs, to which I, I never actually said that. I said that kids were going to do drugs anyway, so maybe you should try to talk to them about safety and common sense rather than demanding abstinence, because that's never going to happen. Or at least not until today, because apparently kids don't do anything fun anymore. Weed's legal, and kids are like... Nah, I'm going to look at this TikTok. But what do I know? I don't have any of them. Which, you know, it's fine because if it did had kids, we'd probably just be getting high together. Now, speaking of really bad decisions, rate and review this show so other people who find it take a listen and be shocked by the bad divisions and bad decisions I'm openly advocating. If you'd like to kick us a dollar for weed, head over to patreon.com slash whatthehellpodcast and toss a buck in the stash box. Now, do everything Jeremy tells you to do in the closing credits. Otherwise, he will be forced to burst into the studio and demand to know where I learned this terrible behavior. Who taught you how to do this stuff? You, all right? I learned it by watching you. And so for me, Dave, sitting in my basement, rolling myself a taste of something green and gold and glorious, but so, producer... I've never been stoned, and I've never missed it. Gavin, and all the fictional rockers against drugs on this show, we want to say, it's perfectly okay if you roll yourself a bomb up, think about your mama, fool around, lay around, and jack around a while, because the way the world's going, you might as well be stoned so you miss it. 
and we'll see you all next week. What the hell were you thinking stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings podcast network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com, or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast, or on Facebook as What The Hell Podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. Are you high right now?